Good morning. Uh, welcome to part five in our uh, series on truth, thinking about why truth matters, if it does. And uh, this morning, we are going to be talking specifically about the issue of uh, the Bible being a reliable source of truth. Uh, up to this point, and I just point this out in case, you know, you, you, if this is your first uh, message in this series, let you know that they are all online. You're able to go to our website or our YouTube channel and, and check those out. So um, all the previous messages should be there. Up to this point, we have seen that this issue of truth is one that uh, shows a definite division between where our culture is at and things that Jesus said. Uh, Jesus affirmed that there really is such a thing as ultimate truth. There's truth that is always and everywhere true. Uh, our culture, of course, uh, by and large, does not affirm that. Jesus also affirmed what the ultimate purpose of that truth is. And it's not just to make us smarter, not so we can win arguments, it's so that we can know God. That's why ultimate truth exists. The question we're going to deal with today is, well, okay, if that truth exists and that's the truth that enables us to know God, where do we encounter that truth? Where do we find that ultimate truth? Um, and our answer as a church, you may have guessed, uh, is that... <laughs> The Bible, we regard the Bible as the source of that ultimate truth. Uh, you'd expect to hear that, wouldn't you? Philida, Bible, church, we're not really trying to hide it. In fact, we want people to know it. It's quite obvious that we regard the Bible as true and worthy of our trust. But it's also obvious that our culture, again, by and large, does not share that point of view. So why do we hold that view? Are there any good reasons for thinking that and believing that? Well, we're going to start with what the Bible says about itself. I'll explain why we do that in just a second. But we're going to start with that. And the Bible claims to be Scripture. Scripture, that is... This is what the word scripture means. It means God's message written. God's message written down. Uh, so 2 Timothy 3.16 is just one place where we see this. There are a number of references we could look to, but I'm going to limit to just a couple here. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture. And at this point, the Apostle Paul is referring to the Hebrew scriptures, the uh, Old Testament, all Scripture is breathed out by God. All that is Scripture has this quality of being God's breathing out. The Bible also claims that God spoke by means of people, by means of human beings, uh, under the inspiration, under the power, under the direction of His Holy Spirit. So this is 2 Peter 1.21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It doesn't have its ultimate origin in human will or initiative. But men, people spoke 
from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, you, you can actually see that claim throughout the Bible again and again and again. It claims this. And you might very well say, oh, okay, sure, that's what the Bible claims. It claims to be God-breathed Scripture. But just because it claims to be that doesn't mean that it is. And that's correct. That's correct. But the most reasonable place to start is with what the Bible claims about itself. Listen to its claims with, you know, a reasonably open mind, as opposed to, and this is what wouldn't be reasonable, starting out by saying, well, whatever this book claims to be, it can't be that. It just can't be whatever it claims to be. That's not reasonable. We don't do that with other documents. You know, if you open up a love letter, and it claims to be a love letter, you don't start out by saying, well, whatever this is, it's not a love letter or a last will and testament or something. We start out by saying, okay, well, let's listen to what it says about itself. Let's listen to what it claims to be. We should do that with the Bible. But then of some, at some point, of course, you have to decide, do you believe what it claims about itself? Is it really... Is it really God's message written down for us? Did God really speak with the human voices of the human authors? Or to say it another way, and this is our question for the day, can we trust the Bible to tell us the truth? Can we trust the Bible to tell us the truth? That might sound like a pretty academic question. You can sort of just imagine, you know, a group of gray-haired intellectuals smoking their pipes and stroking their beards as they talk about ancient manuscripts and scribal traditions and uh, church councils. So it could kind of seem like, well, that's a really academic question, kind of removed from real life, not, not that personal. Oh, but it's very personal. It's a very personal question. Real people, real persons, have staked their lives on the message of this book. They are counting, they are depending, relying on its promises being true. And there are many people who are putting their very lives at risk in believing the message of this book. Places throughout the world. It is a very dangerous thing. I was just reading a prayer letter uh, yesterday um, from a ministry that uh, uses broadcast uh, channels to broadcast the good news of Jesus into a very closed country. And the people who are receiving that, who are responding to that, who are believing that, they're putting their very lives at risk, their livelihood, their family, it's a very, very personal thing for them. If they can't trust the Bible to tell them the truth, they're doing a very foolish thing. And then there are millions, hundreds of millions of others, and I put myself in this group, who find comfort and hope and purpose and peace, who find 
God in this book because we believe we can trust it. So the Bible is the, the, the issue of the Bible's reliability is a very personal issue for those reasons. And then one more. It's personal for this reason especially. It turns out that the answer to the question, can we trust the Bible, revolves very much around a person. There is a person whose believability is closely tied to the believability of the Bible. As we're going to see, Jesus made it very clear that he believed that Scripture really is God's message written down for us. He very deliberately and very intentionally tied his credibility to the credibility of the Bible. And so, because he did that, you really can't trust one without trusting the other. Uh, either we can trust Jesus and the Bible, or we really can't trust either one. So, before we can answer the question, can we trust the Bible, we have a, another question we have to answer first, which is, can we trust Jesus? Can we trust Him? I'm going to give you two answers to this question, can we trust Jesus? Here's answer number one. His eyewitnesses say yes. His eyewitnesses say yes. And what I mean by that is I mean the people who knew Jesus personally. Okay, his eyewitnesses. Those who lived with him, those who saw what he did, those who heard what he said, those eyewitnesses described Jesus as a one-of-a-kind person in whom we can place our confidence and in whom we should place our confidence. So, you could, someone could immediately say, well, now hold a minute, hang on. Um, we've got a potentially serious problem here because those eyewitnesses, those eyewitness accounts you're talking about, well, they're in the Bible. So, kind of sounds like you're arguing in a circle here. You're assuming that the Bible is reliable, and then you're using the Bible to prove that the Bible is reliable. It's, it's a circle. That doesn't work. That's circular reasoning, isn't it? Not exactly. Not exactly. Here's why. You have to realize that whatever your opinion of the Bible is, whatever you think of it, you've got to understand that the New Testament descriptions that we have of Jesus, these New Testament descriptions date back to the time when those who knew Jesus personally were still alive. It used to be very popular. It used to be popular for critics to say, Oh, you know, we don't really know anything for sure about Jesus. Um, because these documents were written many, many, many years after he lived. And so, because of that, those writers were influenced by beliefs that had developed and evolved over time. And so, really, what we have in the New Testament is what the church 
ultimately came to believe about Jesus, not a description, an eyewitness description of who he really was and what he really said and did. Well, as I said, that used to be a pretty popular criticism, but it does not hold up. It doesn't work because the eyewitness testimony is simply far too early for these descriptions of Jesus to be legendary that developed over many years. I'll give you an example. There is widespread agreement among scholars that the letter we call 1 Corinthians from the Apostle Paul was written by him around A.D. 53, A.D. 54. That's just 20 years after Jesus was put to death in A.D. 33. Now, if you're 20 years old, 20 years sounds like a really long time. <laughs> for those of us for whom 20 is a distant memory in the rearview mirror, 20 years is nothing. It's just nothing. No, no offense intended. But I want you to notice, so we're, we're going to look at something in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, here, Paul is writing down what has all the indications of being like a statement of faith or a creed, because the words he uses talk about being passed on or delivered, received. That's the kind of expression they use to talk about. So this is a statement of faith that precedes his writing it down. Look what he says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received... That Christ, that is Messiah, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers, he means Christians, at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Okay, so see what we have here. This is 20 years after Jesus' death. You've got this Jewish teacher, this Christian apostle, teaching apparently in accordance with a statement of faith that was making the rounds he's teaching that Jesus is the Messiah who died in fulfillment of scripture and he rose from the dead and was seen by multiple eyewitnesses and this teaching was written down and disseminated distributed proclaimed during the lifetimes of the people who had actually known Jesus personally. So to dismiss those beliefs as, you know, legends that developed hundreds of years later, it just doesn't work. The evidence is just way too early for that. It's not plausible. The point being, you don't have to start out believing that the Bible's inspired by God to except that these New Testament accounts are early, authentic accounts of what people believed 
who knew Jesus personally. And their accounts, their description of this person, this person is amazing. They describe Jesus as a man of incredible love and compassion, who had compassion on the outcasts. He was a man of great power and authority and integrity. They say he could heal the sick with a word. He could calm a storm with a word. He could walk on water. He claimed, according to them, he claimed to be able to forgive sin and to be one with God and to be the only way to God. You might just, well, that just sounds crazy. But he doesn't come across as a crazy person or a deceiver. The Jesus these eyewitnesses describe is someone who is absolutely one of a kind. And the portrait of him is consistent through all the different authors. So here's the thing. You've got to decide what you're going to do with that eyewitness, those eyewitness accounts. This description of Jesus that goes all the way back to the days of the eyewitnesses. Is it real? Is it a real portrait of the real Jesus? Or did somebody make it up? And if somebody made it up, how in the world did they convince people to believe it when the people who knew the real Jesus were still around? So this is what that would be like. Um, one of my heroes died 21 years ago. Charles M. Schultz, creator of the comic strip Peanuts. So yeah, Charlie Brown, Snoopy, all those characters. What would happen if today somebody tried to write a, an article or a book and claim that, you know, that's all just a legend? Charles M. Schultz, he didn't create Peanuts. He didn't write all those comic strips. In fact, he didn't even really exist. Or if he did, he was a Chinese national or something. <laughs> something equally outlandish. Okay, could somebody say that? Sure. Sure, somebody could say it. But it's not going anywhere. Because there are still plenty of people around who knew the real Charles M. Schultz. So you don't have to start out believing that the New Testament writers were inspired by God, but because of the evidence, you have to decide one of three things about what they wrote. Either they were telling the truth, or they were deliberately lying, or they were deceived by what must be the greatest con in history. Now, to my mind, it's no contest. These are not the words of liars or idiots. So the eyewitnesses say, yes, we can trust Jesus. The second answer to that question, can we trust him, is yes. History says yes. History says yes. And now what I'm talking about is solid historical evidence in addition to the New Testament, 
that supports the conclusion that Jesus of Nazareth really did live, he really did die, and he really did rise from the dead. That conclusion is supported by history, or at least that people believe that. So I'm going to summarize some of the evidence. If you'd like to read more about it, um, there are several books you could look at. I'd recommend one by a guy named Lee Strobel. It's called The Case for the Real Jesus. He does a good job of presenting this evidence in an easy-to-read way. But here, here are the main facts. I'm going to give you four facts that the majority, the great majority of scholars, even skeptical scholars, would agree are confirmed by the historical evidence. Okay, First, a Jewish man named Jesus was crucified about A.D. 33 under the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. Two, within a few years, there were thousands of people following him, claiming to ident they identified themselves as followers. These followers believed that he had risen from the dead and he should be worshipped. And they were so convinced of this that many of them were willing to be persecuted and even executed rather than deny this belief that Jesus is the living Lord and Savior of humanity. Okay, that's what happened. Historical scholars don't dispute that. That's what happened. The question is, what explanation is adequate for these facts? There's no doubt that the earliest followers of Jesus believed he had risen from the dead. Many of them claimed to have seen him alive. There's also no doubt that the tomb was empty. Because if it hadn't have been, this whole Christianity thing could not have gotten off the ground. All the authorities would have had to say was, what are you people talking about? Jesus isn't alive. Here he is. They never did that. And there's no doubt that the people who proclaimed that Jesus was alive had very, very little to gain and everything to lose by proclaiming that message. It was not popular, certainly not with the authorities. They weren't making money. They encountered serious opposition. Some were even killed for it. Why did they do it? Why did they do it? Well, the obvious answer is they believed what they were saying. They believed it was true. They believed he was alive. Okay, so think it through. Think it through. The tomb is empty. And here are these people running around saying, Jesus is alive. And we've seen him. And even if you kill us, we're not changing our story. Are they lying? Are people going to their deaths for what they know is a lie? You say, well, they were just deceived. These people were in a position to know whether what they were saying was a truth or a lie. People don't die for lies that they know are false. And, and the whole deception thing, how do you deceive somebody into believing? What's really funny is you go back and read the, uh, 
the accounts. You know who, was the hard, who were the hardest people to convince? Jesus' followers, his own disciples. The women came to him and said, hey, Jesus is alive, we've seen him. And they're like, go lie down. You're out of your mind. How do you convince somebody that you conquered death if you didn't? So consider the alternatives and decide what's the most believable explanation. Now, if you start, if you decide ahead of time, miracles cannot happen and Jesus cannot be who he claimed to be. If that's where you start, well, then looking at the evidence of history and the eyewitnesses won't change your mind. But if instead you say, you know, I'm going to look at this and I'm going to go where the evidence leads and take the time to read the words of this amazing one-of-a-kind person, you might find yourself coming to the same conclusion that many of us have come to that this Jesus is completely worthy of your trust. And once you settle that question, then that lets you answer the question of the day, can we trust the Bible to tell us the truth? Jesus says, yes. He says, yes. And he says this in so many ways and in so many different places, it's kind of hard to choose. We could look at so many things, but I've got to limit myself. We're just going to look at a couple of passages that make it very clear what Jesus thinks about the trustworthiness of Scripture. Okay, so uh, we'll start in Matthew 22. There's a group of religious leaders, and they're arguing with Jesus. That happened a lot. They're arguing with him about the resurrection. Is God one day going to raise the dead back to life, or isn't he? Now, these guys, they were called Sadducees. Uh, they did not believe in the resurrection, even though most Jewish people did. Now, at this point, don't worry about you know, the details of the argument. Just pay attention to how Jesus deals with the issue. Okay, so, verse 29, And Jesus answered them, <laughs> You are wrong. Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was, look at this, said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Again, don't worry if you're following the argument. Just look at how Jesus lays it out. First, he tells these guys, you're wrong because you don't know the Scriptures. And then he quotes a line from those Scriptures, from the book of Exodus, to be precise, to resolve the issue. And he says, this was said to you by God. So, Jesus is telling them, your thinking doesn't line up with Scripture. Therefore, your thinking doesn't line up with what God said. Therefore, your thinking is wrong. You think Jesus thinks we can trust Scripture when he argues that way? Let's look at another one. Mark 7. 
Here, Jesus is dealing with another group of religious guys who opposed him. This is kind of a daily thing. Um, and, and these guys think they are just super obedient to the Bible, to Scripture. They've got a very high view of Scripture, and they're like, yeah, we're all about it. We're all about obeying the Scripture. And you know what? We've got traditions on top of the Bible that are even more strict so that we make sure we obey the Bible. So they think they're super obedient. Jesus has a different opinion. Mark 7, verse 9. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside, notice, the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Now look at this. For Moses said, the commands of God coming through a guy named Moses. Moses said, honor your father and mother. This is Exodus 20. Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Do you see what he's doing? You see what he's doing? He's treating Scripture as the commands of God through a human author named Moses. And he says, you need to take what God has commanded and place it above your traditions. Don't nullify the Word of God. Jesus does this again and again and again. If you never have, take time to read through the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, and just pay attention to how often Jesus appeals to the Scriptures as the Word of God that we need to understand and obey and follow. Because the God who made us has given us the path of life in his word. Now, of course, the examples I've shared, those all refer to Jesus' view of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament scriptures. That's all the Bible that was written at that point. Did he ever say anything that would help us know what his views on the New Testament would be? Well, yes, the eyewitnesses tell us that Jesus chose certain men to be his representatives, his primary spokesmen. And Jesus promised to send them his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, to teach them his message. So here's a couple of places. John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority. Whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. And we already saw in some other passages that it's that same Spirit who carried along people to speak His Word. Look at one other thing Jesus said. This is Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Who says that? 
Jesus says that. That's quite a statement. His words will never pass away. And those are the words recorded in this book. Can we trust the Bible? Depends who you ask. Depends who you ask. But if you ask Jesus, it's a pretty clear answer. Absolutely. And ultimately, each of us has to decide what carries the most weight with us, whose opinion counts the most. The opinion of Jesus? The one-of-a-kind, miracle-working, truth-speaking, dead-raising, sinner-rescuing Son of God? Or do we go with somebody else's opinion? If He is the one whom the eyewitnesses say He is, if He is the one that history affirms, doesn't it make sense to trust Scripture the way He did? As the very Word of the God who made us, who loves us, who sent His Son to save us. Will you choose to go with what He says? or with what someone else says. That's really what it comes down to. Whom are you going to trust? Let me invite you to pray with me. And I realize there are a lot of issues that I didn't cover. And so you might have some some questions that you want answers to. And I would be happy to do anything I can to help you find those answers. So if you want to make a note on your Connect card or send me an email, pastorscott at philida.org and ask a question or I can, I can direct you to some resources. But the focus of this was very intentional to be on the person of Jesus and what he says about Scripture, about the Bible. Because it's ultimately going to come down to who do you trust. And if you're here today and, and uh, you're just wanting to put your trust in him, I just encourage you to do that as we pray. He came to seek and save the lost. And he said that without, without knowing God, without knowing the God who made us, without knowing what he wants from us and wants to do for us, we are lost. So I invite you just to call out to him in prayer and he'll hear you even if you don't voice the words out loud. And if you've basically been claiming to be a believer in Jesus, but you just don't take the Bible that seriously, you don't read it, you don't try to understand it, you don't try to follow its 
direction, I just challenge you to reconsider. Reconsider this one you claim to follow because he made it pretty clear what he thinks we should do with the word of God. Father, we just pause now to to thank you for this incredible gift that you've given. Help those of us who are struggling to understand it, to read it, to stake our lives on it. Lord, overcome whatever barriers there are, whatever objections, whether they're intellectual or just spiritual or just because we want to be in charge of our own life and not let you be in charge. Lord, whatever whatever the issue is, Help us, Lord Jesus, to trust your word the way you would have us trust it. We thank you in your holy name. Amen.